This is Sarah Bordeaux, and you are listening to PodSAM, the podcast channel of SAM Magazine, the voice of the mountain resort industry. It's time to start planning for next winter because there's a lot to plan for. One thing is for certain, it will not be business as usual. What might winter operations look like? On this episode, we hear from operators around the world who have recently reopened or will soon open for skiing and riding. We'll start the discussion here with SAM publisher Olivia Rowan. Thank you for joining us today for our Monday huddle. I'm Olivia Rowan of SAM Magazine, and joining me as co-host is Rick Call, our editor, and Sarah Badeev, who's our huddle producer. We start each week um, hearing from the folks at NSAA, National Ski Areas Association, um, and happy to have Kelly Pollock um, join us to kind of share what they're working on, and um, they're doing lots of efforts to help keep all of us um, with business continuity through all these uh, challenging times. So Kelly, why don't you update us on what you guys are working on? Okay. Thanks, Olivia. Thanks for everybody at SAM. Uh, so at NSAA, we're happy um, to see many improvements to the SBA PPP loans um, that many of our areas have applied for. And we continue um, work on advocacy for the ski industry for relief. Um, but we're also really focusing on education and resources right now. Um, the summer ops edition of our pandemic playbook is now out on our website. Um, and we've turned our attention to winter, the winter edition. And we feel like we have some time on our side um, and that by waiting a little bit, we'll learn more and be able to write a better resource. So our timeline right now, it's changing every day as we get together and we talk, is um, to release by September 1st. We think that will give Skiarias plenty of time to um, use the resource, uh, add to their plan that I know they're already working on, but also um, to see what, what what's happening out there. And, and huddles like this are, are perfect opportunities for us to learn. And, and that's what we're doing, is trying to consume as much information as possible. We're also talking to our ski area members to see what kind of resource it is that they want. So the next edition may be a little different or have some supplements that um, we haven't done in the uh, last two editions. And then finally, um, we are working on some projects that you would actually expect to come from NSAA at this time of year, like research. Um, putting our research plans together for next year. And um, as you might expect, um, we're really digging in and, and looking at diversity and, and what some of the um, research we can do to expand upon, let's say, um, like Gen Z that we did last year. And one of the barriers that our, our Gen Z um, respondents said is that uh, people don't look like me at your ski areas. So we'll dig into some of that data too. So I think that's uh, kind of a good summary of what's going on at NSAA. Thanks. Awesome. Thanks, Kelly. Um, so now let's get on to our topic today, um, which we simply titled, We're Open. And um, we're excited to get a glimpse into a little bit of a crystal ball today um, with operators who have reopened recently um, or about to fully open for winter in the Southern Hemisphere. So many operators here um, listening today are grappling with planning for next winter just because there's so much unknown and there's still as kelly said there's still lots of time um, to figure things out and for the locusts to arrive pretty much and so one thing we do know for certain 
is that it won't be business as usual. And what might winter operations look like um, is what we're gonna try and get a sneak peek to today. Um, so our panel today includes uh, Paul Anderson, who's the CEO of the Remarkables Coronet Peak and Mount Hutt in New Zealand. Alan Henseroth, who's the a uh, Arapaho Basin, uh, Colorado COO. John Burton, Director of Marketing at Timberline, Oregon. Frank DeBerry is Crystal Mountain, Washington uh, COO. And Jimmy Ackerson, who operates, Jimmy, you're gonna have to help me with the pronunciation here, Coralco? Coralco. Coralco, Coralco Resort de Montana in Chile. Um, and they are set to open for winter in the coming weeks. He's also the president of the Chilean Ski Areas Association. Um, so let's get started, Alan. We're gonna tee you up first. Um, and so as I said, Alan, COO of A Basin, you reopened for the past couple of weeks um, and then closed yesterday, if I read your blog post correctly, correctly. Um, due, due to warm weather. Um, in your blog post yesterday, you said we have much to talk about. So I thought that was a great way to start off uh, today's huddle. So tell us with the wisdom of, of hindsight that many operators on the call don't yet have, um, what your reopening experience was like and, and um, you know, a little bit of your lessons learned that you might carry over. Wow, yeah, there, there is a lot to talk about. There's a lot that we learned. You know, when we closed back in mid-March, um, you know, most ski areas had, you know, just two, three, four weeks to go with their season. You know, we're, our, our season's a little different. We have a long season. We had three full months to go and, you know, some of our very best months to go of the season. And so we, we never gave up the thought that we were going to try and reopen. I, I probably thought we would have gotten open two or three, four weeks sooner than we did, but it, it took that long for all this to develop. Um, you know, as we did by the by the time we got to open it, opening, it was uh, May twenty seventh, and you know it was it was quite a process. We worked really closely with uh, Colorado Governor, his office, uh, Colorado Department of Health and Environment, and the local Summit County government, um, and 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 it really was a process to get to the point to be open, and we kind of noodled our way into this idea that we could open with a capacity of 600 skiers. Um, you know, I would have liked to have done a lot more. I think some people would have liked to have done less, um, but, you know, but that was a, when you're working with all these different people, you kind of settle on something. And, and one thing we learned for what we were, we started with three lifts and went down to two lifts as snow continued to melt, but we, we could really easily handle 600 people, keep those people separated, um, you know, parking was very, very easy uh, for that amount of people. We chose, uh, you know, we opened with actually nothing except the lifts. Um, we, uh, it was primarily for pass holders. Our local forest service made us sell a few lift tickets, just they felt that was fair to give a few other people a chance, but it was primarily for pass holders. We did that for two days and then we opened up a couple of our food and beverage uh, locations with limited service and then we did kind of a curbside style service in our retail shop those did okay um you know some of the lessons that we learned um with the limit of 600 people our original plan was to uh you know at 7 p.m a couple nights before uh opening day we were gonna at, at 7 p.m we opened up the our online system to, to fill out the 600 reservations. And a, 
in about 15 seconds, 4,000 people logged on and just <laughs> completely, completely crashed the system. And so we scrambled really hard with that. We came up with a lottery system um, and uh, where people, we gave people a couple hours in the evening, two nights before to, to sign up for a chance to go skiing. Again, we only did it one day at a time because there were just so many uncertainties. We didn't know how long it was going to last. We didn't know what the reaction from the government was going to be. We didn't know how well people were going to behave. And by the way, they behaved really well uh, on the Hill. Um, so we, we, we did it one day at a time. The, the demand, I could only describe the demand as crushing. I mean, people really wanted to go skiing and riding. There was a, a really tremendous pent up desire to go. And we would have as many as 7,000 plus people signing up for those 600 spots. Um, so in the first several days, the people that got to go skiing loved it, um, but there was a lot of very, very disappointed um, people that they couldn't come skiing. And I think the nature of the last minute deal on it, um, breakage was really quite high. So, you know, we'd have as many as 20, 30, 35% of the people wouldn't show. Um, after getting a reservation. So we had some challenges figuring out how to fill that. And ultimately, we did kind of backfill that in a good way. So there were some tough parts that way. There were some, the nature of the lottery, the way we did it, there were kind of some inequities between different pass groups. And we sorted through some of that to try to, to spread the, the opportunities a little more equally. You know, as time went on, kind of the demand eased off after five or six, seven days. People either either they got fed up with it or they'd gotten a chance to ski. Um, and so we had less and less people applying, but we still had as many as two and a half thousand people trying to get 600 spots. Um, in those first few days when we weren't coming close to uh, meeting the demand, there was a little bit of uh, uh, a hostility and social media, you know, upset that they couldn't go skiing. And, and that was a bit of a bummer. That really tapered over time. And it really turned into something much nicer. The people that got to go skiing were very appreciative, appreciative of it and saw kind of the great extent we went to to make everything work. Um, so, you know, in the end, it worked out really positively. I, I don't know if we're going to be restricted next fall when we open our Summer business opens up in about a month on July 2nd. We're still not sure how that's going to be restricted, hopefully minimally. But um, we, we really learned some terrific lessons. Um, our, um, we're not a great technology company, and we really need to beef some of our systems up there to be able to handle this kind of different expectation. You know, as far as things on the Hill, we had a lot of signage out there about keep your distance. Throughout this conversation, operators shared signage that they are using to educate guests about new protocols. Follow along with these images available for download at www.saminfo.com slash huddle. Alan, just, just talk us through your, um, your pictures here. So, Yeah, so, you know, actually, this was one of the highlights. Um, once, you know, we, I, I said after a couple of days, we opened a couple of food and beverage operations. This was our, our mid-mountain restaurant. We did an outdoor barbecue. We had a few picnic tables. We had a lot of Adirondack chairs. People just scattered out. And that's where it really turned into a, you know, I think a very beautiful experience. People were enjoying the mountains. They were outside. Most of the time we got, we lucked out, had really good weather. 
and uh, that was really good. So um, lifts, this was a sign we had scattered all about the ski area, but especially in the lift lines. Lift lines were really easy. In essence, we kind of skipped every other maze lane, um, which we could get away with for only 600 skiers. But at 600 and two or three lifts open, we never really had much in the way of lift lines either. They backed up a little bit here or there. And I don't know, we just picked that up from somewhere else. But, you know, we had people that signed from someone else, but we had people either riding by themselves or with the party that they traveled with to get here. You know, what, what is normally uh, a, a, just a deck where people apres ski and hang out, we turned into sit-down table service. Um, in, in Colorado, restaurants can be open. The bars are still limited, so ours is a restaurant bar. We actually couldn't seat anybody at the bar, but we had people scattered on tables and uh, it, it worked out actually really nicely. Alan, what would have been your normal capacity um, this time of year? If it, you did 600, what would you normally do this time of oh, year? You know, we would have been doing um, on a weekday, one to 2000 skiers and on a weekend, two to three, maybe two to four if it snowed. So we, we were way under, what we normally do. And, you know, we did have a lot of officials visit us. Um, a lot of official visit us, Forest Service, our local health department officials, a lot of other ski areas visited. And everyone agreed, including the health department officials, that, you know, we, we had room. We could have had more people. More. Instead of uh, scanning people each time they came through, we essence made a bubble out of the base area. We were limited to one small area with access this time. And we only scanned people once to get on the snow. And then we didn't scan them again um, to, to a limit to uh, really reduce the contact between employees and guests through that process of scanning. Um, so another thing we did with the lifts, again, we could get away with this for low capacity, but we were, we slowed the lifts down a fair bit and we didn't actually bump the chairs on the fixed grip lifts. And uh, so we, we, we were able to keep distance between our lift operators and our skiers. Okay. Um, I think we're, we're going to come back around and ask some general questions after we go through um, John and Frank. But um, super helpful. And the pictures were awesome. Thank you for sending those, Alan, um, and for kicking us off today. So, Rick, let's jump yeah. to uh, Let's John. turn to John Burton from Timberline. Um, John, you guys were the first to reopen back on May 15th. Could right. you take us through a little bit of the process that you went through to get open and then what you discovered after you did get open and how you yeah, adapted? Yeah, th and, and everyone did, Sam, thank, thanks for having us all on. Um, we're happy to share information with our, with our industry colleagues anytime as we, as we go through this and, and, and uh, you know, hopefully get better at it. So I'm going to be just kind of looking at a brief outline. Um, make sure I'm covering what I feel is important. Um, so upon closure, much like Alan, uh, we anticipated opening back up Timberline. We're, we're fortunate enough to have, we ski 12 months a year here. Um, as many of you probably know, we flip over to our summer program on June 1st. So we're, we're still actively um, skiing and snow, snowboarding. Most of that is anchored in sort of elite level training. Um, but what we did from the onset, and I think is, was critical, is we were proactive working with our local and state government on what a potential opening could be. So, um, you know, our governor had obviously had a lot on her plate, and, and maybe ski areas, prob, you know, were probably not a 
giant priority for her, but we felt that if we would help her people get through this, provide a point of view, provide a, a continuity plan um, to keep our guests and our, our employees safe um, and just basically help her pave the way that for us to open, um, it, would be, it would be mutually beneficial. And it, and it was, and I do not think we would have opened when we did if we hadn't been that proactive all the way to the top. So um, definitely get engaged. Um, and then just basically understanding um, capacity and, and our numbers were very, very similar to A-Basins um, when we opened. The plan that we had to submit um, to the governor that we, we chose to submit to the governor did have capacity um, calculations in there. That plan was accepted, um, and it, but it did not have to be approved. So we, that what that means is then we're, we kind of regulate ourselves on how we're, the comfort level that we're having with, with our execution on keeping our guests and employees safe. So um, really key. And then just understanding what your capacity is and how you're gonna manage that throughout all your operations. We also opened with basically just the lifts open. There was no seating inside the day lodges. The hotel was essentially closed um, with the exception of one or two overnight guests. You could come in and use the restrooms, which were metered. There was basically a lunchbox grab and go uh, food and beverage option out of our out of our cafe cafeteria style uh, dining, and um, it, it was all about the skiing and snowboarding. And we, we simply asked people to go back to their vehicles when when they weren't when they weren't on the hill. So, by and large, our our customers were also very grateful. Um, we were crushed with the demand. Um, we definitely had some software challenges. Um, a reservation system, much like Alan's, 24 hours in advance. Um, but there were definitely some highly frustrated people out there as well. Um, and we expected a, a certain degree of frustration, but um, I would say prepare for more than you would ever think was possible from a very small handful of people. Um, pretty, it, that was disappointing. Um, for sure. And the tension of being cooped up and that was brought to the hill. That and, you know, just basically, you know, you can't have a conversation about your operations based on your customers' feelings. So as we're going through and we're promoting social distancing, how you ride a chairlift, how you park, we, we actually had a tech station further down Timberline Road preparing people and setting the tone for the day. Um, and positioning that as a place to get information, but also, you know, that this is this is very serious. Um, I think one place where we could have done better is supporting our frontline staff. Um, Did you have scripts ready for them? We we had some scripts ready based on a, just a reservation transaction. We did not have scripts ready for highly frustrated people. Um, and I would just implore everyone to whatever you got to do to support your frontline people. Um, if, if there is some sort of a reservation or restriction um, and considering your pass holder loyalty versus your revenue objectives, um, you, you got to support your frontline staff. Um, if not, it frustrates them. Um, they don't want to be here. It translates to the customer experience. Things escalate. Um, and uh, that that's a, I cannot under, under, overstate that enough, I guess is what I'm trying to say. So. Was there anger at having to wear 
a mask or do lift lines in a way they're not used to? What was the anger or the frustration? Yeah, yes, all of the above. Um, from the reservation system to the protocols that were up here. And we were, we were somewhat pointed in our message where we put out our guidelines. And our first guideline was, if you do not intend to follow these guidelines, don't come to Timberline. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, it, in what, what we found it was interesting and actually very effective was once we started having conversations with people that had a problem with what we were doing, even though they were here, it's not, you're not going to get through to anybody talking to them about their feelings. Um, everyone has a different point of view, a different comfort level. Um, once we took everyone's feelings out of the conversation and the script and the narrative changed to, this is about the transaction today. And if you're going to ski a ride at Timberline, these are the rules. And it's not, you know, it's not about COVID or, or anything else. It, it was remarkable how well it worked. Um, so it's for us keeping it about the transaction and, and then it would elevate the experience and um, it made it much, much easier on our frontline staff. Did the press help you or, or? Yeah. So that I was really worried about the press. So we were getting some, some um, questions prior to opening on both sides of, of the, of the situation. We re we'd really appreciate it if you open. Outdoor recreation is important for physical and psychological health. People are just like, when are you going to open? And then on the other side of that is, how could you possibly consider opening? We hope you're not going to open. So we were proactive with those people before before we got the, the, the nod from the governor. Um, but thinking about the press and coming at us with those types of questions and how we are um, rationalizing was the word uh, you know that kept coming up, opening in, in what is a very trying time. But by and large, they were they were super supportive, and it was all about the Stoke. And you know, here's a glimmer of, of you know a glimmer of hope and some light, and people are getting back out. And it was softballs, um, and and uh, I was surprised at that. I thought it was going to be a lot more difficult than it was. So use it to your advantage um, for sure. Awesome. Stating the obvious, but that's how that's how it rolled up here. Alan, did you have the same? Was yours more positive than anything, or was there some undertone of the same kind of frustration? In the press or from the public? Public. From the public. You know, the frustration was was shared online. It was people that couldn't get a reservation. Right. Our reservation system wasn't sophisticated enough that we could only limit someone to one day, and so people were disappointed at that. So that was our angst, was, was related to getting access to the mountain. Anyone that came was having a blast. I mean, it was it was a beautiful experience being here, visiting with people and talking to them. And then over time, that kind of took over the social media side of it too. So, and did you prep your employees with any scripting? That's a question here from the audience. You know, I don't think we did a whole lot of direct scripting per se. We did a lot of training with our employees, and uh, we had created a pandemic response plan. Um, it's kind of a living document each time we change. We had it in place before we opened, and then again, we updated it for, for following our opening. But we spent a lot of time with our employees, and um, but, the, but there wasn't a ton of contact. That, that guy scanning the F&B employees, there was a lift off. Maybe they bumped into patrollers on the hill, but yeah. they were all trying to keep our distance. And John, yeah, did you do rentals? Started the rental program on June 1st. So, uh, and that's still at um, 
today I believe it's skis and boots only. We're not doing helmets um, right now. We're also trying to figure out, we're getting ready to open our bike park and we're figuring out what rentals are gonna really mean um, as protective gear is, is a big part of that equation. And that's much more tactile with chest plates and elbow pads and stuff directly on the skin. Uh, and helmets obviously being a critical part of that. So we're still trying to figure out how we're going to approach mountain bike protective gear rentals. So. Yeah. John, was there anything that you have learned in this li limited opening that will help you as you plan on gearing up? I mean, anything you learned about dealing with lift lines or the food and beverage department or anything else like that, or even rentals? Yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, we're learning every day. We're adjusting every day. You know, for example, our technology stack to do the reservations, we've changed it three, maybe four times based on <laughs> what we're learning, and it's still not great. Um, so we're anticipating, you know, we hope not, but maybe there is a reservation protocol going into the fall. Um, we don't know. So we're, look, we're definitely looking at plans A and B um, to really beef that thing up. Because that's, that's your first point of contact with the customer, and that begins their experience. So um, we want to make sure people that are able to get a reservation have the best experience possible. Lift lines, you know, we had two chairs running most days. Palmer was, was under construction. Um, we would have had three. So we were fortunate enough not to have any major delays or stoppages in, in the lifts running. We had some plans, you know, to keep people from gathering at the bottom as we, as we you know, get the lift running again. I don't know how that's going to go, you know, when the lift, you know, stops for 10 or 15 minutes and, you know, all 2000 people are waiting at the bottom, you know, trying to get on. So um, hoping to learn a little bit more about that. Maybe our, our Southern Hemisphere colleagues will have some input after a few months of yeah. moving into this, this new reopening. So. Uh, Frank, let's um, bring Frank DeBerry into the conversation um, of Crystal Mountain. Um, um, so, um, Frank is with Crystal Mountain, Washington, um, and we've had you on a couple of huddles um, before, and I'm just curious at what point um, you decided to proceed with, what and why, you, to proceed with reopening. Maybe you always knew it, and you just were waiting for your moment, or maybe was there a moment? I just would be curious what, why you jumped into reopening. Yeah, you know, I think that we... Um... We, we started out basically just watching and trying to understand how the state's reopening process was gonna go, when and where things would happen. And um, as it started to look like certain restrictions were going to ease up in the state and we knew we still had some snow, we just made that decision. And so we made the decision mid-May to open you know, on June 1st, provided we got to Washington State's uh, phase two, and then Washington State decided to regionalize their openings, and so we weren't sure exactly how we were going to open. Um, and so we stayed in really close contact with the governor's office, as I think I heard John mention. Um, staying in touch with the governor's office is is critical to understanding how you're going to be able to open. And um, in some states, obviously, skiing is a really, really big part of the economy, and so the governor's office may already be thinking you know, of how to keep ski resorts or get ski resorts going again in other states where it's not as much of a, you know, big part of the economy. Um, it's not necessarily front of mind and it certainly wasn't for summer. So you have to be proactive. You have to be reaching out to government officials and, and trying to get a feel for what's going on. So we made the decision in mid-May. Um, we didn't know for sure that we were going to open until May 26th 
which is when we got the final guidance. And so we kind of kept it to ourselves for a little while. And then as soon as we knew, we, we kicked off the plan. Uh, there wasn't a lot of difference between us opening for skiing and us opening our, our scenic gondola rides for the summer. So, you know, much of the planning that we've done uh, in order to be able to open to ski was uh, incorporated in with uh, with the planning that we're doing for the summer. So it wasn't a huge amount of extra effort to be able to move to skiing. Um, our, our operation, the way it works is, uh, you know, we've got the gondola delivers you to the summit and then we had a, um, a higher alpine chair that Green Valley, which is what we operated. So we only operated one chair for skiing. Um, and our capacity, we started out at 500, we got up to 800 and, uh, then that's where we cut it. And what we did was we started at 500. We met every day at one o'clock. We said, okay, how did today go? Do we have any way to expand capacity? Can we fit more? Is it getting uncomfortable? And, um, you know, picked a new target for the next day. I think we went from 500 to 625 to 800. Uh, and then we stayed, we stopped at eight because the line for that one particular chair was, uh, I think we got up to 15 minutes to ride the chair and it's 900 feet of vertical. So you were, you know, waiting 15 minutes for four minutes of skiing. So um, that, that actually worked out really well doing it that way. And we were able to get the reservations released uh, for 2 p.m. Um, for the next day, similar to how um, John did it down in Timberline. In fact, I mean, Alan and John were a big help to us, whether they intended to be or not, because we got to watch the plan. You know, we got to watch what you guys were doing and how you guys opened. And, and we did make some adjustments to our plan based on that. Um, the sell out on those days that you opened it up? Uh, yeah, first three days we were sold out in 90 seconds. <laughs> and uh, I think the longest day was actually our last day because the weather was kind of even though we got three inches of snow overnight, Sunday was kind of rainy and snotty. So um, we didn't, you know, we didn't sell out quite as quickly. I think it took eight minutes to sell out on Sunday. <laughs> um, but we, we did shut down. We would be open still, but the weather has really turned warm and wet for the remainder of the, the period we were thinking of being open. So we shut down and we're going to be closed for two weeks and reopen for scenic rides on the 19th. And so it was first come, first serve for those slots? Yeah, the slots, um, we used Eventbrite, um, which was not integrated in, obviously, with our point of sale system at all. But it was a really simple way to get, um, you know, a high bandwidth reservation system. So we didn't have to worry about server capacity or anything like that. Nobody got knocked out. No servers went down. Um, and, and I think similar to what both John and Alan said, everybody who got a reservation was thrilled and the people who didn't were vitriolic. I mean, they, <laughs> they were, they were angry. They really were angry that they didn't get a reservation. And, um, you know, so on one hand, you know, we got screamed at a lot online and a bit on social. On the other hand, I have never had more guests thank me for being open than we did this past week. I mean, people were really, really excited to be able to get out into the mountains onto the snow and and uh you know kind of think of something besides everything else that's going on for a little while did pass holders um how did you hand did, did they get any preference with they didn't uh and we definitely heard about that a little bit and we said look you know this you know this is an opportunity for everybody and so it's first come first serve 
it's a little different as you you know as a lot of people know we had um some of these capacity challenges in january and we um we did give all of the preference to pass holders then and we didn't sell tickets at the window it was basically you know online or pass holders only we had to limit inventory at that time um so some people were a little surprised that we didn't pre uh, give pass holders preference but you know we kind of we it was a little bit of a you know come on guys let's just all try to you know let's can't we all just get along so to speak you know and, and i think we got over that pretty easily um you know the like and then like i said you know towards the end um, I, I think people who really wanted to ski got to ski because what we saw was in day one, we were 90% pass holder, 10% paid visits. Um, by the last three days, we were in the upper 20s to even, uh, I think, low 30s on the last day. So the pass holder percentage sort of dropped down and we were getting more paid visits and the sellout time was slowing down. So. You know, it was a problem at first, but but it did settle out. Um, like has already been mentioned, I think as we go into the winter, if we are, you know, um, you know, if we do need to do a reservation system um, for an entire winter, that's, I, you know, I think that has bigger repercussions, right? Because if somebody bought a pass holder and they're getting knocked out three or four times, um, you know, they're going to, they're going to start to, you know, question what, why they purchased that pass, I think. Sure. And so I, I can't say we have the solution for that. You know, right now we're in the process of looking at the capacity of every little piece of our operation, trying to understand what the constraints are, trying to understand what we would do to expand on those particular constraints. That's what's going to tell us what we think our daily capacity is. And that'll let us know, I think, you know, what the best plan forward is. But we are looking at reservation systems. Um, uh, not necessarily, we're looking in two areas. Um, we're looking overall at the mountain. You know, if, if we have to limit capacity, how are we going to give people, you know, the, the ability to, you know, not drive 90 minutes from Seattle, come up to the mountain and get turned away? You know, how will we deal with that? And then the second is we're looking in our lodges at um, potentially setting up reserve times to sit at a table in the lodge. Okay. And so, you know, you set up a 30 to 45 minute time slot and you allow people to go online and reserve the time slots. And then, um, you know, the, the rest will have a lot of outdoor seating and things like that. Um, I think we learned a lot more on our last day of winter operation than we did this um, this experimental week that we just had, um, you know, we were able to do everything outside this week. So we didn't have to worry about our most constraining spaces. Um, you know, people were, were able to easily maneuver around each other. The only thing they had to go inside for was the restroom. And, um, you know, we, we did have that metered. And, and um, if there was a line, we actually managed, we put an attendant there um, to actually do, you know, one in, one out. Um, but when we move to winter, you know, people are going to need to get inside and, and, and so how will we, you know, how will we manage that? Um, you know, we, our last day of operation this winter, uh, we had all of our lodges closed. So we were operating purely outside and while it worked for one day, you know, I, it worked because people, um, you know, had they they knew they were coming into something different and it was a one-time thing and 
I think going in, you know, we've, we've really got to find ways to be able to get people into those lodges, which we think will probably be restricted in Washington to 75% of fire rated capacity. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, we've got to find a way to get people in, get people out. And then, you know, what do we do with the, you know, the brown baggers or the parents who are here, you right. know, to, to let their kids be in the race program and things like that. And so we're actually looking at the potential for a temporary facility for next winter, um, which we were going to need the following winter for, because um, we'll be under construction with a lodge the following winter. So we bring that in a year early, create an extra 5,000 square feet for people to use just to sit. And that, that's all that'll be. Well, that's a, a good um, segue to, you know, you're talking about things of what to do when the winter season happens. Um, and thank you for sharing, Frank. Um, and this kind of segues to hearing from um, Paul. Um, from, so we have our, our friends in New Zealand who are about to open up their winter season fully uh, this month. Paul Anderson is the CEO of three resorts in New Zealand, the Remarkables, Mount Hutt, and Coronet Peak. Um, so there's a lot we're curious about, Paul. <laughs> I don't know where to start, but um, you know, we're curious to hear about your preparation for your winter season um, because you, you do have to figure out you know, you're in the winter season and people inside <clears throat> and outside. Um, you have, I have slides, Paul, so, and I'd love to show those at a point that it makes sense, but why don't you just um, start with taking us through a little bit about um, your preparation for winter season. Yeah, sure, thank you. And uh, yeah, thanks for the opportunity to have a chat. Um, well, our, our preparations obviously um, turned on their heads, um, although probably at a slightly easier time of the year for us than it was for, for you all in the US and in North America, um, because we were, it was March when our government made the decision to close our borders and uh, put us in lockdown. Um, New Zealand went into lockdown for a week, uh, sorry, for four weeks, um, and then has gradually eased those restrictions over uh, over the last four weeks. And as of yesterday, New Zealand um, is in the very fortunate position of having zero COVID cases in the country. Um, And the government has put us back. Yeah. yeah. Um, So the planning we had done to get underway um, had assumed that we would be at what we refer to as level two. Um, but we're actually now at level one, so we're actually able to release those restrictions, which, which provides a whole bunch of other problems, but I, I can touch on those briefly. But just in terms of the planning, as we, as we were thinking about operations with COVID restrictions in place, there were, there were three main things that we had to think about, and I don't think these will be unfamiliar to anyone. Um, the first was physical, physical distancing. And we had some protocols that we developed across our industry. Um, our industry is relatively easy to, to corral because there's, um, compared to the US, there's a, a relatively small number of players. So three of the major operators would put our hands up uh, and those three operators represent about 85% of our market. And we, did, we led the development of these protocols with our government officials um, to get a green light to be able to open. Uh, it was great working with them. Um, very quick, it was myself and CEOs of two other, two of our other major ski operators. So we could make very fast decisions 
um, and develop these protocols in the best interests of, of, the, um, of the overall industry. Um, but yeah, I was mentioning the first one was physical distancing and how we would deal with um, mainly with choke points. Um, the second one was contact tracing and how we would support the government's um, uh, the, the government's need to have swift contact tracing in the case of uh, clusters of infection breaking out. And the last one was just enhancing our cleaning and hygiene protocols. Um, so with the physical distancing, we implemented what we a zone map, um, and we were going to use what, what the authorities called a zone map with green, uh, orange, and red zones. <clears throat> green zones were going to be um, zones at the resort where people could move around freely, provided they kept a two-meter social distance. So, you know, think you're going to your local park. Um, that's a green zone where as long as you stay away from other people, you're okay. Um, then we had orange zones. Orange zones, our rules in New Zealand allowed people to come within a metre of each other, provided there were controls in place. And those controls that we put in place were essentially contact tracing. And we were going to use our um, in-touch uh, lift ticketing system and um, modify that for entrance into our food and beverage facilities. Um, that they were the main areas. So we so we looked at um, the the other area that was an orange zone was learners zone learners areas because obviously you have more people in close proximity. Um, then the other zones were kind of the no go zones or um, back of house staff zones. Um, inside zones where there may have been additional controls that were required um, because we had restrictions around the number of people who could gather in any one spot at any one time. Um, so we, we've developed a 24-page uh, a document, which I'm, um, which I'm very pleased to say is no, no longer needed as of uh, midnight last night as the restrictions were lifted. The Ski Areas Association of New Zealand shared this document with us for their Alert Level 2 preparations. You can download this at www.saminfo.com huddle. Moving to level one obviously brings us other challenges because we'd been planning for um, severely restricted uh, guest numbers, you know, down at around um, 20, 30% in Queenstown, where we've got Coronet Peak and the Remarkables, and maybe 50 to 60% up at uh, up at Mount Hutt, which is by Christchurch. So that, that market is... Um, more reliant on a local market. <clears throat> now that we've been able to release those restrictions, we've of course um, employed not many staff because we were right-sizing our business. So we're in the position of opening Mount Hutt this Friday with uh, relatively limited lifts and, um, and very quickly looking for more staff. Um, great problem to have, um, but listening to some of those stories about guest frustration um, we know people have got very short memories and um, I'm sure we won't be forgiven for not having all our food and beverage operations going or we won't, the, the bottom of some chairlifts not operating. But um, we'll do our best to be communicating that very strongly to our guests. Um, at one stage at Mount Hutt, uh, we had to restrict our season pass sales. <clears throat> We've been actually quite astonished at the level of interest in um, in ski, we sold almost as many season passes this year as we did last year. Um, and that is, you know, even though our economy's taken a direct hit from this, uh, 
in this pandemic. So we've got very strong local interest and at Mount Hutt we were worried about our ability to manage um, physical distancing, particularly in the weekends. They get big weekend crowds. Um, so we we sent out a message to our customers um, during our early bird sale that we were going to uh, restrict the number of season passes on sale. Now the problem with that, as you all know, is that only a fraction of your customer database subscribes to your marketing updates. So only a fraction got that message and you can imagine what the rest had to say on social media. Um, so it, it, there's an opportunity for you all to, uh, to let your customers know now that uh, if, if, if never before, now's the time that they really want to get updates from you straight away. And it's a great opportunity to uh, increase your, your contactable database. So I should pause there and I'm obviously happy to take that. So I actually want one more lesson and, and I'm sure I'm preaching to the converted here, but um, the, one of the biggest challenges we've had is the changing regulatory environment. So as we've moved through our alert levels, um, the, the restrictions have changed and the government's literally been making it up as they go along. So I've actually just been looking at the website because we just went to level one last night. Um, I'm still unclear as to what our responsibilities on contact tracing are, for example. Unfortunately, we've already got protocols in place for level two, so I just think level one might be a relaxation of that. But it's an example of where we've got frontline staff taking quick um, taking customer questions um, and we're frantically trying to get up to date on what what the right information is so yeah trying to keep them in the loop has been really challenging um, and just you know communicate 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 just keep them up up to date as much as we, we possibly can uh, has been critical and also getting um, probably the ongoing challenge for us is going to be reminding our teams that even though we're back to alert level one, which is relatively normal operations, give or take um, more regular cleaning protocols, um, that it is a different season for us. So, you know, we're still, we, we don't have our borders open, so we don't have the usual Australian traffic we get in New Zealand, which is about 30 or 40% of our visitation. Um, so that means that we have had to right-size our business, lower our staff levels. So trying to get staff to appreciate that, even though it feels normal to us now, it is going to be quieter on the hill and uh, everyone's doing a slightly different job this year. So I think that's going to be a big, big communication piece for me as I go into the season. Paul shared several signs and posters that the New Zealand government developed as a toolkit for businesses. View these at www.saminfo.com huddle. Um, uh, so take us through, you know, I really was struck when I, when you sent me your whole toolkit, um, how comprehensive it was. And is this developed by your group of ski areas or is this from government or who? who? No, th this is, this is government. So um, one thing our government has been really strong on is communication. Um, I think um, our, our prime minister particularly is a, is an, ex is a, unbelievably astute communicator um, and she has set the scene really well for um, how business and how the public should um, should handle this pandemic um, so the, that overriding message about be kind was a really great one for the government to to lead with um, because it actually you know sets the side the not not just what you've got to do but how you've got to be mm -hmm. um, 
these ones as we're coming through um, obviously this this was under level alert two so these these restrictions will ease now um, the main one left I think the previous slide showed um, showed the alert uh, the contact tracer so our government's released a contact tracing app um, which it's more on the person rather than the government so when you swipe this app all it's doing is logging where you've been on your phone it's like a it's like a diary and then if there was a a an infection outbreak the government can then ask everyone to check where they've been and let them know if they've been, if they've been in contact with someone and these are just again just um examples of of uh signage that has been made available for us to use by the authorities. Um, we haven't personalised this in any way yet, um, but we, we will as we go into season in a few days. It, it makes sense if it's signage that they're familiar with already. Exactly, yeah, abs absolutely. And you know, thinking from your perspective, statewide signage would really help um, because people get used to seeing that kind of thing. And that's been one thing I've been able to say to my team is that look, you know, we don't need to feel bad about this because people are going to get used to seeing this kind of signage and being asked to do certain things in certain ways. Um, so yeah, we, 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 we are very fortunate to be in the position we're in. And um, I talked to uh, Miss Snowdall, as some of you may read her, her post yesterday in Australia, and she said, we, we're going to be the envy of the world because we can go into the season relatively normally. Um, but, you know, we, we, we feel a heavy responsibility to act in a responsible way. And um, like I said, the, the decision to restrict our season parcels was a tough decision commercially, but from a, uh, from a moral standpoint, a very easy one to make because I, just, you know, I said to my board, we, we just can't have a situation where our team um, is put in a position where they can't manage the number of people arriving or, or gathering. So be strong on that as leaders. Thanks. And so you really have, because you got the, the, the uh, pivot to one, you don't have to worry about rental and lessons? No. <laughs> no, we don't. But um, in that, Yeah, in that document we're happy to provide, we had outlined some very high-level protocols around cleaning um, PPE for various departments. I mean, we'd worked through... Um, everything from patrol and medical rooms, uh, food and beverage, retail, travel and transport, rental, um, gatherings and staff safety um, and, and education being snow sports and crashes. So we put in some high level guidance um, for the resorts to use. And and the, the main, I, I talked to some of my colleagues yesterday and I said, look, that wasn't wasted time. Um, because what it did was gave us the confidence to be able to say to each other and our guests, hey, we're ready to operate. We're, we can operate safely. Um, and I guess from a commercial perspective, it meant we could go out with a really strong message to the market and said, this is how we're going to operate. You're safe to, you're safe to spend your money with us. Um, so it's the right thing to do. At this point, should we transfer to uh, and talk to Jimmy about how things are going in South America? Jimmy, it seems like... Um your situation is quite the opposite of, of what's going on in New Zealand since um, the pandemic is really sort of approaching a peak where you are. So could you talk about how the resorts in Chile have been approaching opening and um, also how you've been working with your communities? Um, 
Yeah, it's been very, very interesting uh, as we've been uh, moving forward on this. Uh, we started all of our planning on the 15th of March with the, with the Ski Areas Association. And uh, perhaps it would be good for everyone to understand that it's very different in the states in the sense that uh, this is an extremely centralized government that, uh, that everything happens in Santiago. Many people would tell you that Santiago is chilly, even though it's one of the it's that big, long, skinny country in South America, and uh, we've got 7,000 kilometers from the northernmost ski area to the southernmost ski area. And uh, so as the pandemic has been moving forward here, uh, one of the things that occurs is that until the, the pandemic uh, flattens out in Santiago, it's probably not very... Uh, reasonable to think about reop or about opening at this time, though uh, we're all ready to go. As I said, the the fifty the the twelve ski areas uh, in the association have put together a fifty page document, which actually is then handed over to the Ministry of Tourism uh, for their approval, which has already been approved, and then it's turned over to the Ministry of Health uh, because the guidelines for ski area operation. Uh, are actually developed internally within the Ski Areas Association, and then they have to meet the approval of the Ministry of Health. Uh, so that's all done, and, uh, and we're just waiting to get going here. Uh, the question Rick made regarding community is, I think, something that really all of us have to maintain uh, on the forefront here, uh, because in the end, uh, in dealing with a pandemic, it's not just about the resort, and the visitors. Uh, we found here in Chile that uh, we have a lot of folks that have their fears and, and uh, worries about people coming in from outside and, uh, and infecting. In fact, the community where Coralco is located has three municipalities surrounding it with over 100 cases in each community of, of 15 to 25,000 people. And the community that Coralco is located in has eight cases. So uh, the fears that exist of people of coming in from the outside certainly play into your community relations. And early on, uh, back in the end of April, beginning of May, we had uh, some small groups uh, uh, announcing that the winter season should not happen. And... Uh, through communication and education and, and getting the people all together, uh, we've gotten beyond that. Uh, though, uh, due to the fact that it's a centralized government, uh, we do wait for the Ministry of Health to make a determination when we can actually blast off. Great. Gotcha. So what sort of, um, in that 50-page document that you have, what sort of things did you focus on? One of the things that's come up frequently in the comments section here is, what do you do about ski patrol? Good question. Uh, our uh, protocols and restrictions for the 12 ski areas uh, cover absolutely every, every area of resort operation, whether it be rental, food and beverage, retail, all the things that we talked about in preparing for this. In regards to patrol, uh, they're actually pretty much the least of our problems because their protocols uh, on an everyday basis uh, 
have always been based on, on sanitary and health-related attention. So the things that we've done to make sure that that works appropriately is obviously the PPE equipment uh, uh, for the patrolmen when they have to attend to somebody on the hill. Then the transport of, of the clients are all the same. Uh, and uh, the doctor and, and uh, nurses in the, in the ski resort clinics or, or first aid facilities uh, have to go on with their normal protocols, uh, which have always been based on sanitary conditions. So uh, fortunately, uh, uh, we're talking about ski areas that in general have large ski domains and low skier density. So our incidence of accidents in ski areas in Chile is generally extremely low, low according to, for, for example, NSAA standards. It's safe to say that next winter won't be business as usual, but as we plan for the upcoming winter season, it's also clear that there are solutions to meet the challenges ahead. We hope that these huddles and the other resources developed by Sam Magazine to assist during this crisis have helped you all stay connected, informed, and to navigate these challenging times. If they have, consider supporting us as a vital source of information with a subscription at www.saminfo.com slash subscribe. If you want to join a future huddle or if you have someone on your team that should join the conversation, email huddle at saminfo.com. Our theme music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. The Pod Sam Advisor is Alex Kaufman, the Winter Mix Podcast Guy. I am Sarah Bordeaux, and thank you for listening to Pod Sam.